All right. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, worship team, for leading this morning and, and giving me a little bit of a break from, from having to be up here. So I, I really appreciate that and praise God for your gifts that he's given you and serving that way and leading us in praising him. So as we start off, I hope you're still in John chapter 4. Uh, we just read through the verses that we'll look at this morning. Um, but, but stay there. We're in John chapter 4. We're continuing our series through his gospel. And to start off, I want to just say something that's more of an opinion. You could disagree or disagree. It's very subjective. But one of the worst feelings in the world, for me personally, one of the worst feelings of the world is when I miss an appointment. Right? I don't know if that's happened to you recently or ever. I'm sure it has in your life. But when you miss an appointment, it's one of the worst feelings ever. Especially if it's at a doctor's office. Why? Because not only do you miss it, but you have to pay for it. It's like a, 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 a double-edged sword right there. So, again, for me, I have a really bad memory. When people text me or call me, leave me a voicemail, they email me, I won't open up those texts or emails until I'm ready to respond because that red notification will haunt me. It'll keep me up at night saying, okay, something's there. I got something right on my phone. I got to look at that text. Okay, now I can respond back. Or usually I'll set a reminder on my phone. I have a very forgetful memory. So again, hopefully I will never miss appointments with anybody here, but just in case I do, sorry in advance, I'll ask for forgiveness. But it's one of the worst feelings because sometimes you just feel like the, like the whole day could be ruined or you let somebody down. The worst is actually when they call you and say, hey, I'm waiting for you. And then I'm like, oh, I'm on the way. And then, you know, you quickly have to get over on the way. So this morning, right, that's one of the worst feelings for me personally. But this morning, we're going to be reading about a divine encounter, a divine appointment that takes place between Jesus and a woman at a well. It's a very well-known Bible uh, section of Bible verses here. So hopefully you're there. John chapter 4. Before we read and dive in, let me just pray. Father, we thank you, we love you, we praise you this morning. I pray that as we go through your word, it's your truth that is revealed, that it's you who are on display receiving all the glory and honor. I pray, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to move us to conviction if we need it, to joy if we need it, to strengthen our hearts if we need it. Lord, I pray that even as we receive and read your word and discuss it together, that still is worship. So, Lord, we praise you for who you are and for loving us. And in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So if you're a note taker, you can look in the bulletin. There are some notes there. We're going to be looking at three main points together this morning. The first thing we'll look at in John chapter 4 is Jesus' divine appointment. So let's read these first six verses again together. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Let me pause right here for a second. Last week I said something that was different than what we read here. I was like, oh man, uh, seemingly the text pointed that Jesus was baptizing. And I said, man, I'm so surprised. Sometimes we forget that Jesus baptized. And then someone pointed out to me, and I read this verse. I only had to read two verses longer. And in parentheses, verse 2, although Jesus himself did not baptize. So I'm correcting myself, right? If I disagree with God's word, I'm wrong. Right, so I'm saying Jesus did not baptize anybody. Rather, it still doesn't take away from last week's sermon. He has a ministry of baptism. His disciples are baptizing, and Jesus is there giving a thumbs up. He's approving of this ministry. So he left Judea. He departed again for Galilee. Let's, let's keep reading in verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. 
So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So this section starts off with now Jesus, he's in Jerusalem, he's down south, making his way back up to Galilee. In John chapter 2, we read about the wedding in Cana. That took place around Galilee, up north. Now Jesus has went down for Passover. He cleansed out the temple of all the impure worship at the end of chapter 2. Last week, or or a few weeks ago, chapter 3, we looked at Jesus having a private conversation with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a leader amongst leaders. And I will say today's text echoes a lot of John chapter 3, the conversation with Nicodemus, with Jesus' conversation with this woman at the well. Although very different people, different cultures, different genders, but Jesus continues to reveal heavenly truths. So the question comes up, why is Jesus leaving this section And why is he going back up to Galilee? There's a few different ideas that some people have had. Maybe in verse 1, Jesus didn't want to have a public rivalry with John the Baptist's ministry. As we looked at a few weeks ago, John the Baptist's disciples were accusing Jesus of stealing all the disciples. More are going to him. Less are coming to us. John, what are we going to do about it? And we saw John's humility about Jesus, right? The famous, he must increase, but I must decrease. I don't really think that's why. It could be. Another scenario is maybe Jesus is trying to avoid a premature confrontation with the Pharisees. Jesus isn't afraid to confront the Pharisees in his ministry. Later on, he does it, and he clashes with them all the time. He corrects them with their wrong doctrine, the wrong way of worshiping. However, here, it seems like Jesus' popularity is growing. It says, when Jesus learned the Pharisees heard, that Jesus was making more and baptizing more than John. The Pharisees didn't like John's ministry of baptism, his ministry of repentance. They probably, most likely, wouldn't like Jesus' ministry of baptism and repentance, the same as John's. Right? Maybe it was to avoid, maybe, I don't think so. More likely, according to this text, Jesus had a divine appointment in Samaria. If you look at verse 4, it says, And he had to pass through Samaria. If you study the word in the Greek and in the context of this verse, it's not talking about he had to travel because the GPS took him that way. It's talking about he was compelled, he had to, something was happening that he had to go. So I would argue Jesus had a divine appointment, and that's why he left and he went through Samaria. And real quick, just as a sidetrack, I was just meditating and reflecting on these verses this week. I'm just blessed and blown away at the simple fact of God's sovereignty. God never misses his appointments. Scripture is full of examples of God's sovereignty, his rule and reign over all, that even when we mess up as humans, when we drop the ball, God's will is still accomplished. He still carries out his plan despite our flaws, our weaknesses, and our failures. So I was just thinking I had a little encouragement on that. And in the same way, Jesus is not going to miss his appointment. It was a part of God's will, God's plan, for him to go and travel through Samaria. And I'm not sure how good you are with geography. I used to be good at geography, but not much anymore. But a little bit of a, of a road map, right? The Jews would avoid traveling through Samaria at all costs. They would avoid it. And what happened is there's two ways to travel up from Jerusalem to Galilee. You can go, I'll try to do a little visual map. Jesus is down here at Jerusalem. Galilee is almost directly north of him. 
the quickest, direct, most easiest route to take would be just go straight north. The only issue is you'd go through the region of Samaria. And as I mentioned, Jews did not do that. And I'll explain why in a second. Instead, they would be here in Jerusalem. They'd most likely go east. I'm going backwards, so it makes sense. They'd go east to Jericho. They'd cross over the Jordan River. They'd follow the river all the way up, going around Samaria to get to Galilee. And that, tra- that traveling route could double their travel time. It was a little harder as well. So for whatever reason, right, Jesus as a Jew with his disciples, the Jews didn't pass through Samaria, but here we say they had to. They had to. Divine appointment. And why did the Jews avoid Samaritans? And, and we'll touch on this. It was mentioned a few verses later. I'm going to try to summarize 400 years of conflict in a few sentences. I'll keep it very simple, hopefully. Under King Solomon, the nation of Israel was split. You had the northern kingdom made up of the ten tribes of Israel. You had the southern kingdom, the two tribes of Israel. Northern was called Israel. Southern was called Judah. I think we got that so far. Kind of easy so far. The Assyrians would attack and exile and just conquer the northern kingdoms. Babylonians would come and do the same to Judah. The issue and the problem was the northern kingdom tribes, they started to intermarry and intermix and adopt pagan cultures of the Assyrians around them to the point where the Jews of the southern kingdom looked at them and said, you are an abomination. You forsaken God, you intermarried, you're no longer a part of God's chosen nation because you married outside of Jewishness or Israelites and now you've intermingled and intermarried and the generations are now tainted because of your sin. So between the Samaritans and the Jews, there was a feud. There was hatred. And I will say it was racist hatred. They hated each other so much that Jews would double their travel time because the very devout Jews wouldn't dare step foot in Samaritan country because they would be deemed unclean or they didn't want to upset God because they're the chosen race. So there's this deep hatred, and we see it here when the woman asks, uh, when she responds to Jesus a little later in, in these verses, right? There's 400 years up to this point of hatred between Jews and Samaritans. But what we read is Jesus and his disciples, they took the most direct route through Samaria. And also, I think it's quite cool. We see a glimpse of Jesus' humanity. Did you catch that? John's gospel is big with pointing out the divinity, the divine act, the miracles, that Jesus is God. But here we get a little glimpse of Jesus' humanity. Verse 6 says, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So it's high noon. Jews' days went from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So if it's 6 a.m. and it's the sixth hour at 6, you get noon, right? It's high noon. The sun is shining. It's the hottest part of the day. Jesus is weird from his journey. He's about maybe halfway, a little less than halfway there to Galilee, and he's sitting at the well, tired. I don't know if you ever catch it. Throughout the gospel, so you do see little glimpses of Jesus being tired, Jesus being so tired he falls asleep and sleeps through a storm. Do you remember that with the disciples are on a boat? So a little glimpse of Jesus' humanity here. And I will argue this. The stage is set. Jesus is at the right place. He's at the well. At the right time, high noon, at 12, for his appointment. And now enters the person he's meeting which number two in your notes would be the woman at the well. Let's read a couple of verses. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. 
for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So here we see the Samaritan woman is introduced, and we see Jesus is alone. The disciples went into the city to get some lunch, to get some food. And don't think of Jesus as being bossy. It was common uh, practice for the rabbi's disciples to go in to help and, and to maybe go grocery shopping for their rabbi. I'll put it into some language nowadays. Right, so Jesus is sitting in probably the shade near the well. His disciples are off in the city getting food. And we're introduced to a woman, a Samaritan woman. And there's something about her as we just observe in this text in these verses. There's two things. She's drawing water by herself, and it's the hottest part of the day. Now, in that culture, women would collect the water, and they'd usually fill about 40 pounds of, of buckets or, or gallons and bring it back to town. They're about a half a mile from Sychar here at the well, but she's drawing water by herself. In that culture, that was a, 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 like a time of women to have fellowship, drawing water together at the well. They'd be together. They'd have conversation. Also, it would be for security and, and safety and comfort, right? They'd be together I don't want to say this, but kind of like gossiping around the water cooler at work. But, you know, the same thing. They're, they're gathered together for fellowship, getting water. But not only that, the women wouldn't do it at the hottest part of the day. It doesn't make sense. They'd more so do it either early in the morning or at the end of the day when the sun is not shining at its strongest. Remember, they're more in wilderness and desert than, you know, things here. If you, you know, we have trees here and things. Like, so just keep that in mind. So we'll see later, right, why she's alone. And most of us, if we know this story, this is a little bit of a recap. We, we'll see later why she's alone. But for now, it seems like she's avoiding people. She's by herself at a weird time of the day. Something is not right. And what Jesus does is he asks her for a drink of water. And by that request, she's shocked. She's shocked at why Jesus is asking her for this. Just a few things here. Number one is she's a woman. In that time... It was tradition, now let me make this clear, not God's law, tradition for Jews that rabbis don't talk to women in public. And even the, mo the most devout rabbis would not even talk to their wives in public. So men, before you get any ideas about becoming a rabbi, so you don't have to talk to your wife, I'm just kidding. Human tradition, not God's law. Also, if you were even the most, most devout rabbi, if a woman was in your presence, sometimes you'd close your eyes. And these Pharisees had a nickname. They called them the bruised and the bleeding Pharisees. If a woman was in their presence, they'd close their eyes and they'd constantly, constantly be knocking into doors or walls or people and they'd have their faces all bloodied up and bruised up because they couldn't see. They closed their eyes in the presence of a woman. So not only this, we have Jesus the male, Jewish male, talking to a woman. Again, human tradition, not God's law. God is, Jesus is not breaking any laws here. The second thing is she's obviously an outcast from her society. We'll read about that later. Jesus knows who he's talking to. He tells her about herself. But obviously, she's not just a woman. She's a sinful, outcasted woman. And the third thing, most shocking, was she's a Samaritan. As we mentioned, in the parentheses there at the end of verse 9, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And even the language there is talking about sharing utensils. Jesus asks for a drink of water. He does not have a bucket to draw water from. So what Jesus is asking is, can I use your bucket? Can you draw me water with your utensil, and I'll drink from your bucket? 
It shocked her. Why? The Jews had no, what, dealings with Samaritans. There was a racist hatred between these two races. But not only that, we'll get to the next part in verse 10. We see Jesus' offer. Jesus is breaking all the social norms and social barriers that were made by humans, not God, humans. And yet we see Jesus' offer to this woman in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So now Jesus is flipping the script. He said, If you knew who I was and what I had to offer... I, you would be asking me for a drink. Because why? He says, gift of God. And at the end, he says, living water. And those are the things that Jesus, he'll continue to invite her to participate and he'll offer to her as we read the next couple of verses. And in the physical sense, right, this woman is thinking physically. On the physical side, living waters can mean a, a, a flowing water, like a river, like water that's alive, that's moving. It's not stagnant like the well, but rather it's a, a stream. And in that day, you'd most likely rather would have living stream-fed water that's moving for just safety reasons, rather than sta- stagnant water from a well. So on the physical side, Jesus is saying something. I'm offering you living water, and it's piquing this woman's interest. She's thinking physically. But on the spiritual side, Jesus will reveal the spiritual truths. And really what he's talking about, the gift of God, the living waters, is what? Salvation eternal life, eternal satisfaction with what he has to offer to her. In verse 11, we'll continue reading. The woman said to him, Sir, which is a polite, a polite, you know, attitude, a polite word towards Jesus. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. So here's his offer, right? If you only knew the gift of God that I have to offer, the living waters, and the woman's saying, Jesus, sir, you don't even have a bucket. How am I supposed to get the water that you're going to offer and give to me? You don't have a bucket. But not only that, you think you know better than our father Jacob? He made this well. It's, it's, it's blessed us for hundreds of years. It's still here. He drank from his livestock, our our heritage, our our lineage has been blessed by this well. Jesus, you think you know better about some hidden water that we don't know about, that Jacob didn't know about? She's comparing him to Jacob. It's almost like this sarcastic tone. Okay, Mr. I have no bucket. Where's where's this water? Where, Where is it? You're not even prepared for the water that's here. Verse 13 and 14, again, Jesus' promise. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, the well water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come and hear and draw water. So a couple of things, Jesus' promises, he offers again the living water, and what do we learn about it? He says, anybody that drinks from this well, drinks this water, will be thirsty again. You'll have to come back day after day, draw the water, carry it back to town, and drink from it. And then same thing the next day. He's saying, what I have to offer, living water, you'll never be thirsty again. It's full satisfaction. 
He also says this, it's a water that will spring up of water, welling up to what? Eternal life. What Jesus has to offer is lasting of forever. It, it's eternal. It's good. It satisfies. And I want to say this, each one of us here, I don't care how good you think you are, including myself here, each one of us experience physical thirst. Right? I think we'd all admit that. If I drank 20 gallons of water today, guess what? I'd still be thirsty tomorrow. I don't think you should drink that much water in a day. It might, that might be water poisoning. But the fact is you'll still get thirsty. It won't satisfy. You have to keep drinking over and over again just to be thirsty again. In the same way, we all experience a spiritual thirst that can only be quenched by what Jesus Christ has offered to us. All of us before Christ, we have voids in our hearts. We have voids in our lives. We try to fill them temporarily with things. It might be money, happiness, friends, work, possessions, good things. The problem is those things satisfy us, but for a time. It doesn't last forever. It's only temporarily. And again, don't judge me on this, but when I was in high school, I tried to fill my life with first friends, and then I got all the friends, and I still was in need. I still wanted more. So then I ditched all my friends, and I got so consumed in video games. It became a really unhealthy obsession. I would lock myself in my room all day, all night, playing video games. And guess what? At the end of the day, I was still empty. Right? It satisfied me in the moment, but what happened was it didn't last an eternity. I still had a constant need and a void in my heart. I think about this, and I probably didn't make this up. I probably read it somewhere, but I forgot where. I think about a sailor who's lost at sea. He's on his, life, his, his lifeboat. He, he's lost. He's surrounded by salt water. He's, he's lost at sea. And what happens is he gives him the temptation to drink the water around him, to drink the salt water. Now, it might satisfy him quickly in that moment. It might not taste very well. But several hours later, it will lead to what? Even more thost, uh, thost, thirst and even more dehydration, and it sets in quicker. And what satisfied him in moments will what? End up being his death sentence, right? The same thing is true for us. We all have needs or a physical but a spiritual thirst. If we try to fill that with anything and anyone other than Jesus, it'll leave us wanting. It will not satisfy us. What Jesus is offering this woman is what? Satisfaction. We see the desires of her heart. Now, whether when we get to her sin or not, you can go a couple of different ways with it, but I think it, it still rings true here. She's craving love. She's craving relationship. She's craving what? Longing to be with somebody. So much so that she has five husbands. Now you could, you know, you could ask, well, why? But the thing is, every day she's going and drawing water. She's an outcast from society. The people know about her sin. And look at what she says to Jesus. She says, sir, give me this water. This is verse uh, 15. Give me this water so that I won't be thirsty, that I could be satisfied but not only that, or that I don't have to come here to draw water. Now, if you put yourself in her shoes or sandals for the moment, every time she's out there drawing water, not only is it physically exhausting, she's by herself, she's in the sun, but she's probably reminded of what she's done, the sin that she has. She's an outcast from society, the adultery that is in her heart, in her life. And I want to say this, only Jesus satisfies the desires of her heart. He promises to give us eternal life. He, he revealed the same thing to Nicodemus, that only the Holy Spirit gives us new life, gives us a new heart, makes us born again. 
And the point of John's gospel is that Jesus is God, but he's also our Savior. He's the Messiah who came down from heaven to earth to seek and to save sinners, to make us whole again, to restore our broken relationship to God. There's this word that's used in in the Jewish culture, you probably know of it, shalom. It's a beautiful word if you study it. Shalom is a picture of completeness, of wholeness. And what sin sin did in Genesis chapter 2 or Genesis chapter 3, I'm sorry, shalom was shattered. The completeness, the wholeness, our perfect relationship with our creator was eternally broken because of Adam and Eve's sin, because of their temptation. But we have Jesus coming to what? Restore the relationship, to pay the price for our sin on that cross for us. So as the woman hears Jesus' promise, She asks him for this living water. She doesn't want to be thirsty. She wants to be satisfied. And also, she probably wants to stop coming to the well every day, day after day. Now, some commentators have said, well, I don't think she's being serious. Maybe she's being sarcastic. All right, Jesus, give me this water. I'll take this, this, this water that you're talking about. Other people have said, I think this is her actually genuinely saying, I long to be satisfied. I, I long, I want this water. Whatever the case is, whatever reason, we see Jesus revealing a couple of things in verse 16. So number three, you know, Jesus reveals. And what he does first is he reveals her sin. He reveals her sin. 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you are now with or have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So the first thing that Jesus reveals is her sin. He reveals that he knows her. I don't know if you've ever gotten caught in a lie. Don't raise your hand. But if you've ever gotten caught in a lie, one, it's very awkward. Right? You know, you should not have done that. Right? And what you tend to do is try to get the attention off of yourself, off of your lie, and on anything else other than you and what you've done. You're embarrassed by it. What Jesus has done is he caught her in a half-truth. And what I call half-truths are whole lies. Right? <laughs> a half-truth is still a lie. So she's revealing to Jesus, and Jesus reveals back to her the sin in her life. In John chapter 1, G- um, John starts off in, 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 the, in the, I think, verses 8 or 9. He calls Jesus the true light. The true light, and Jesus as the true light, exposes her sin. He exposes, more importantly, her need for living water. She might have wanted it, but maybe she didn't know she needed it. Jesus is pointing to the fact, reveals her sin as a light exposes what's hidden in the darkness. Jesus reveals her need for the living water, her need for what he's offering to her. The second thing Jesus reveals is proper worship or proper doctrine or theology. In verse 19, right, so she says to him, or verse 19, I perceive you're a prophet, right? Only Jesus could have supernaturally known by God who this woman is and the sin. He's a complete stranger to her. So she's like, okay, I perceive that you must be a prophet. Maybe God gave you this, this divine revelation of my life. But what she says then is, our father, she, she turns it into a theological debate right here. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Verse 22, You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Let me pause right there. The Samaritans had their own place of worship. They rejected the temple in Jerusalem where the Jews would worship God at the temple, and they set up their own temple on Mount Gerizim in this region where Jesus is. And now this woman is saying to him, okay, Mr. Prophet, if you, if you know my life, if you know the truth, then which of us is right? right? We worship on this mountain. You worship on that mountain. Who's correct? And we see in verse 22, Jesus actually gives her an answer. And I love that he doesn't shy away from from calling her out. He says, you, Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. We worship Jews. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, the Samaritans rejected most of the Old Testament. They only accepted the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. They rejected the minor, the major, and the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Because of that, they had a limited revelation of God. As God continued to reveal himself to Israel, to the Jews, right, to the Israelites, they stopped after the first five books. And right here, Jesus is basically calling her an agnostic. You worship what you don't know. You have a limited revelation of God, yet he says on the flip side, Jews, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Again, he calls out which location is correct, and he gives her the answer. And we'll continue reading here. He says, But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Let me stop there for a second. A few months ago, Steve Massaro actually preached on this verse. So I'm not going to go into it, but I'll touch on it a tiny bit. If you want more information about that, you could talk to me. I'll point you where you can listen to that sermon. It was very, very good about what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. But what Jesus is doing, he's making a transition. He's making a statement saying the location is not going to matter. It doesn't matter where you are, but rather true worship is what? Spirit and truth. It's, it's spirit, it's from the heart, it's internally to God. It's not about the external factors, not the external things, but rather it's your heart. The condition of your heart, the location of your heart in relationship to God matters. And to worship in truth is to worship how God has fully revealed himself in his word. It's not to pick and choose different aspects or characteristics of God that you like. Oh, I like this attribute of God. I'll worship him for that. Oh, I don't really like that God's judge and he's just and he has to punish. And I don't like that. I won't, I won't touch on that. What Jesus is saying is true worship takes place, what, spirit in your heart? And re, where, what's your relationship? Where's your location for your heart and God? But also in truth, worshiping God for who he is. And I just want to say something. Worship should never be this. Worship should never be sit there and watch. Sit there and do nothing. Rather, worship should be what? Come and participate. Come and be a part of. Come and sing with us. Come and read along God's word with us. Come and listen together. Fellowship. We shouldn't be coming to church with a bag of popcorn sitting in the pews and saying, well, that's a, nice, that's a nice service. Wow, that's more like what you do at a spectator event where you sit and do nothing. Rather, true worship is what? The condition where your heart is 
and worshiping God in truth, but also it's what? Participating. God is not pleased with outward appearances. Right? You might say, okay, I know that, but, but let, me, let me say this. If you come to church singing, dancing, clapping, smiling, that, that's great. Praise God. But if your heart is far from him, right, if you're playing the part externally and you're here and you're singing at the top of your voice and you're, you're raising your hand, you know, hallelujah, praise God, yet your heart is far from him, God's not pleased with that. There's a whole book in the Bible. Actually, Malachi talks about how God rejects worshipers who hearts, whose hearts are far from him. They might do all the right things out of rituals, out of external things of look how good I am, but he rejects that. And where the Samaritans had failed to worship God in truth, right, they didn't have a complete revelation. They stopped after the first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament. I would argue that the Jews also had a hard time with worship. I believe that they stopped and, and their worship became more religious. It became more ritualistic. The problems with the Pharisees is they were doing everything externally, and Jesus calls them out. You worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. So I don't want to just say the Jews had it perfectly right, but I would say the Jews also had a problem with worshiping in spirit. Even as the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they made it more religion, not worship, more external, not internal. So again, as we worship God as his body, as a church, as believers, we better worship him for who he's revealed himself to be. We worship God because he's God. And on the flip side, that's worshiping him in truth. On the flip side, we better be worshiping him in spirit, which means our hearts are in it. When we come to serve, when we come to do things, when we come to worship, we're here wholeheartedly, and our heart is focused and fixed on him. It matters. It matters. So Jesus reveals her sin. He reveals proper worship, spirit and truth. And the last thing he does is he reveals himself. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, both the Samaritans and the Jews were waiting for a Messiah. The Samaritans, probably from Genesis 3 and Deuteronomy 18, they were, they were envisioning the Messiah to be someone better like Moses to come. They're both waiting. And maybe she didn't like Jesus' answer, and she said, okay, well, thanks for letting me know, you know, Mr. Prophet, but... You know, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us what to do. He'll reveal the truth to us, right? And just the beauty of Scripture, she sets up Jesus for the greatest reveal ever. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am. Now, your Bible's going to say, I who speak to you am he. The he's added, so it makes a little bit more sense in our language. I who speak to you am. Jesus just claimed to be God. And you're like, well, he didn't, where does it say that? If we were here for our I am statements where Jesus says, I am the light of the world, I am, you know, the good vine, all of those statements, Jesus uses a word, the same name of God, Yahweh, found in Exodus, in the burning bush, as God reveals himself, I am who I am, Jesus, in all his statements, when he says, I am, fill in the blank in those statements, he's revealing he's God and Messiah, it's the same word, ego, emi, same thing, I who speak to you am, I am God, I am the Messiah, I am the Savior that you are waiting for, the one who's promised in the Old Testament. And I don't know if you caught this. The first person outside the disciples in John the Baptist, who Jesus reveals himself to be the Messiah to, 
is a woman. Not only that, she's a sinful woman. Not only that, she's a Samaritan, the enemy of the Jews, a Samaritan sinful woman. And there's a whole sermon we could talk about God's grace there, but I, I won't touch on that other than amazing. The, the grace of Jesus, his divine appointment, he reveals himself to a Samaritan woman who's an outcast from society. And possibly next week or the week after, we're going to look at part two. We're going to see what happened after he did this. And I'll just say this. Many people come to Jesus, believe in him because of this woman's testimony, but then they come to Jesus and believe in him because of Jesus' testimony. But before I close, I just want to say one last thing. Overall, as we look at this half of the text, because it does continue on, we can see the process of salvation in these verses. And what I mean by that is, is number one, there's kind of three steps here. Number one, sin gets exposed. Someone said this, without your sin revealed, there's really no need for a savior. So as we share the gospel with somebody, if, if, if we don't reveal and say we are sinners, don't, it's better, say we, not, not you're a sinner, but say we are all sinners. That's what the Bible says, right? But because of that, if people don't know they need a savior, they're not going to care about Jesus. So the first thing, even as Jesus does to this woman, he reveals her need for a savior, that she's a sinner, the same thing is true about salvation. We need a sinner. Why? Because we're in sin. The second thing is that truth is revealed. As you share the gospel, number one, we're all sinners. Number two, what's the good news? That Christ came to what? To be our sacrifice, to pay our debt on the cross, to save sinners. That's the truth. Jesus reveals what it looks like to be a true worshiper, one to worship in spirit and truth to this woman. And the third thing is that Jesus transforms. Jesus transforms. As we looked at Nicodemus, we see only by the power of the Holy Spirit are hearts transformed. Are we born again? So as we share the gospel, it's important to remember this, this kind of three-step process. Reveal sin. Why? Because it points to a need of a Savior. And with that, you reveal the truth that Jesus is our Savior, that Jesus came and took the penalty on the cross because of our sin. And the third is the beauty of the gospel, that all those who repent, believe, turn to Jesus have forgiveness, have a restoration, have reconciliation before the Lord. Again, as we share the gospel, let's remember these truths. And I encourage you, even if you don't come back next week or you miss it, read the second half of the story because you're going to see a town transformed because of Jesus' revealing of who he is to a sinful Samaritan woman. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for loving us. We thank you so much for your word that is true. Jesus, as we just read this morning, and we read just a little glimpse of, of your grace revealed to this woman, Lord, this offer of salvation that even this sinful woman who's an outcast from her town, there's hope that, again, even us as sinners, and the reminder of your love for us, that we can be restored. God, we thank you for saving us. Again, you, you didn't have to die on the cross for our sins. You chose to. You weren't forced to. You willingly died on the cross for us. I pray, Lord, as we share the gospel, as we have gospel conversations this coming week, as we head back to school or work or, or wherever, 
I pray, Lord, that we can continue to point others to your truth, to your word. We thank you that the offer of eternal life is eternal. That all of us who believe in you are, are satisfied. That you quench our spiritual thirst. Jesus, we thank you for the promise and the gift of eternal life. We love you. And in your name we pray. Amen.